Today we are reviewing Poke the Box by Seth Godin. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Mate, Seth Godin, definitely my uh, my number one man, I'd say. Man, I just realised, is that a part of a song? When was the last time you did something for the first... Well, I think you just made that song up just right now. Okay. <laughs> Enough of that. We're not singing but... that song, but let's get into the book. Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Poke the Box. When was the last time you did something for the first time? By Seth Godin. Seth Godin, I'm not ashamed to say, is a, is a favorite of mine. Yep. You get very, very excited when anything to do with Seth Godin pops up. Absolutely, mate. So, this is our fourth uh, Seth Godin book. And this is a good one, mate. This is uh, all about getting started, taking initiative, trying something different. And not just uh, sitting around, you know, doing the status quo. Yes. In a nutshell, that's what it's all about. And we absolutely love Seth Godin's writing. In my opinion, he's the most economical writer. Yeah. Uh, his books are short, but they're the most efficient in terms of what you will learn per page. Yes. Right? This is only a, what, 80-page book or no, something? This is, it's 80 pages. It's a day and a half read mm. at most. And he always packs a message, or a takeaway, just from that day and a half read. And so you know, powerful. a lot of other authors out there would just drag this out into a three or four hundred page book. So that's why we love doing Seth Godin's books. Definitely, man. So we did the dip about quitting. We did tribes about building a, a small tight group. We did purple cow about being remarkable. And now poke the box is all about taking initiative, getting out there, doing something different, and just not following just the normal status quo. So the analogy comes from a buzzer box. So Seth tells a story about the time when his cousin was born and he was a real young kid and he was playing with this buzzer box as babies do. So they threw this little little box in there. It was a little box with a metal cord plugged into the power socket and the box had a few switches, a few lights and some other controls. And if you kind of poked one side, then a light went on. If you poked another side, then nothing would happen. You poke a few more things on it and then all of a sudden a buzzer will sound and you know it all kinds does results in doing different things depending on where you poke it. And what Seth is saying, life is a lot like a buzzer box. You just need to poke certain aspects of it, and then life's going to push back and do different things like the buzzer box. Exactly, man. It's all about finding out what you know inputs lead to which outputs. And the only way you're going to know is by poking, by testing different things. And that's what initiative is. It is actually poking and not standing still. Yes. And realizing that, you know, some things are going to fail when you poke. And then every now and then, just like, <laughs> life the buzzer just goes off. Mate. Buzz goes off. And then, <laughs> you know, you've hit one for six, which is a good thing. And that's what we want to find out. He tells a story about a lady named Annie Downs, who he calls the initiator. One day she said to her boss, you know, Hey, boss, I've got an idea. I'm going to start working on it tomorrow. It won't take a lot of time. It won't cost a lot of money. And I think it's going to work. So, with just those two sentences, Annie changed not only her life, but also the direction of the entire company. Now, you're probably wondering, you know, what was this idea that she had? And you might even be thinking, you know, how did she do it? How did she pull it off? But that's definitely not the point because that's the wrong question. What Seth is saying that the whole point is that it was this change in posture, this initiation that she, uh, the initiative that she took to get out there and start something, try something different, realize that it might not work, it might work. You know, a little bit of time, a little bit of effort, a little bit of money could lead to a whole lot of something different, not just the normal everyday stuff. So, if you're someone who's not inclined to be an, an initiator, this will put the firecracker up your ass to yeah. actually go out there and start initiating some things. 
because today intermediaries and agenda setters and investors are less important than ever before. Money and access and organizational might aren't the foundation of the new connected economy. Initiative is. So, so there's seven different imperatives which is related to this. He says that there's, you know, all these things that you need in order for your idea to take off and to work. So you need awareness, education, connection, consistency, productivity. You need to build an asset. But he says even with all six of those things, you, your idea might still fail. And so the seventh thing you need, it's the hardest one. It's the most scary one. It's the idea that you need to have the guts and the heart and the passion to try something different and put something different out into the world and actually take that initiative. So this is the big thing that separates all those individuals who do awesome in their organizations and their business and in life in general compared to those who just kind of struggle in language and just fall away and die. That's Adam Jones' words, not Seth Godin' <laughs> words. But the same simple thing differentiates exciting and growing organizations as well. So the winners are the ones who turn initiative into a passion and then into a practice. And the challenge isn't in perfecting your ability to know what to start and when to stand by. The challenge is getting into the habit of starting in the first place. So he's saying that you don't want to think, okay, there's three options here. Which one do I start and which one do I not start? He's saying you need to just get in the habit of starting. Just start everything that you possibly can, especially early on. The most, Im- like the most important thing is that we've got this inertia, this status quo to not start, to just do the normal stuff. So we need to first of all practice to start new things. Yes. He talks about this idea of flux and risk and differentiates it because it's not immediately obvious uh, what the difference is here. And this is something that really causes us to be stagnant in what we do. Flux is just when things are moving, when there's flow, when there's things changing and things happening. And risk is the chance of winning versus losing. So the thing that it, it might work or it might not work. So risk is obviously seen as bad by some people because it comes with the possibility of failure. So some may even see risk as the same as failure and just the thought of risk is enough to shut you down and stop you from taking action. So risk is avoided because we've trained to avoid failure. Yeah, some people feel that, okay, if there's a, you know, there's a, a one in three chance that this is going to work. If the first one works, I don't want to try the next one because I think uh, the more I try, the more I'm, like, I'm guaranteed to fail at some point. Mm. But that's not the issue. As long as you keep trying and keep doing different things, a couple of failures don't matter too much. So anxiety, which is similar, is experiencing the failure in advance, obviously all in the head. So if you have anxiety about initiating a project, then of course you will of course you associate risk with failure. So, you know, this is just a lizard break kicking in that we all have to deal with when we're starting something new. There's always a chance you'll look like an idiot, the thing might not work and you, you know, you might end up being a big failure. Exactly, man. And the lizard brain Seth talks about is sort of like the resistance from the war of art in that, you know, he says that this anxiety kicks in when we start thinking too much rather than just doing, where the lizard brain tells us this isn't going to work, this is going to fail, you're such an idiot, don't do this, don't risk anything. Yes. Uh, He's got an incredibly powerful analogy in my opinion here, which he kind of really explains this whole process. Like a rock in a flowing river, you might be standing still, but given the movement around you, collisions are inevitable. So flowing down the river, you're going to be hitting some things because the river itself, like the world economy at the moment, is always changing. And the irony for the person who prefers not to move is that there's far less turbulence around the log floating down that same river. It's moving, it's changing, but compared to the river around it, it's relatively calm. So the economy demands flux. Flux is what we're in for. Fortunately, flux is also what we're born for. 
So he's saying that if, if you've got two options, the river's moving no matter what. And if you can either be the log that's moving with the river, trying different things and constantly changing and growing, you're going to actually feel like you're not getting buffeted around too much. Whereas if you're a, a rock that's sunk to the bottom of this river, just getting smashed by this constant change, that's definitely a bad place to be. So you don't want to be the rock. You don't want to be a stick in the mud, I guess, in that you don't want to just be stuck in doing what you're doing. You want to be the log that's moving with the times, going with the river of change. Yes, and change is accelerating. So, you know, you're going to be left behind pretty quickly compared to that log that's just flowing down the river compared to the rock that just just falls to the bottom and just withers away, which isn't good. Not at all. I like how he says, you know, what what can you start? after We've been talking about, you know, taking initiative and starting something different. So what can you start? Seth says that some people think that it has to have a lot of money or it has to have a big building or a special name or a stock ticket behind it to start something that matters. We think that we have to build something massive and grandiose, but it's not true at all. We have to just start by starting something small, something different just even a one-day change rather than trying to build a, a massive company and take it public. That's obviously a big change to make, a big thing to start. But Seth said, start small, you know, just a little spark of, initiate, of initiative to start something different is, is a great place to start. Hmm. And when can you start? And this is a, a really just a huge chapter where he just describes this in massive detail and it's got six words. Soon is not as good as now. That's it, mate. It's like... Uh, uh, people have said this before, you know, the best time to plant an apple tree was probably 20 years ago, but the second best time is is right now. So he's got a few rules here. And the first rule of doing work that matters is you need to go to work on a regular basis. So, you know, art is hard, selling is hard, making a difference is hard. And when you're doing hard work, get rejected, getting flogged, fall, failing, working it all out, this is a dumb time to make a decision about whether it's time for a nap or a day off or a coffee break. So, in advance, you need to know, right, you're going to go through an absolute or what Seth calls another book, The Dip. You're going to get flogged around. So, you need to schedule it beforehand and anticipate the, 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 the shit you're going to be eating on this journey. <laughs> exactly, mate. Exactly. You know, if, there's, if you're starting to try something different and you start and you're, you're an hour in, the wor- that's the worst time to think, okay, it's time for a nap when it's not quite working. He says that Zig Ziglar, which is one of Seth's uh, heroes... You need to make your schedule before you start and, you know, commit to that. It's sort of like, again, there's a lot of war of art in this, isn't there, man? Yes. And then it's like, you know, sit down, do your work all the time and don't let the resistance kick in or the lizard brain kick in and and throw you off course. Mm. So, we're brainwashed by the pit boss. Not sure who the pit boss is, but... He's the boss of the pit. He's the boss of the pit. I'm sure he's a... It's by the sounds of the connotations there. We don't like the pit boss. But it's to do with the factories. So, back in the day during the Industrial Revolution, factories needed compliant workers to stand on the production line and perform their assigned tasks. Casinos needed employees to do exactly what they're told and NASA required astronauts who don't question orders in a routine mission. So, as the the culture kind of drives this absolute compliance, you know, factory workers pretty much lent to the side, the conservative side of not trusting people's and individuals' initiative. So, in eliminating uh, individuals' initiative, this is what we stand on the shoulders of today in our culture. So, you can't grow by becoming even more predictable than ordinary. You might have a dependable and predictable and cheap product, but if the market wants something better, you'll be stuck trying to play catch-up. I like it, man. And sort of leading into this is the section he calls Pick Me, Pick Me. And we've been, as you said, we've been brainwashed 
for generations. You know, we've been authors think that you have to be picked by a publisher and entrepreneurs think, oh, you have to be picked by a venture capitalist and employees think I have to be picked by my boss before I get a promotion. And so this idea of pick me, pick me, waiting to be told by someone else, it's essentially acknowledging that the power is in the system and that there is somebody else who is going to initiate, somebody else who's going to tell you what to do and pick me moves the blame off you and puts the blame on some higher power. So you need to reject this idea of pick me and instead... You got to pick yourself. Yes. Or as James Altshaw would say, choose yourself, <laughs> which is the worst version of pick yourself. <laughs> yes, mate. I don't think they should be said in the same. <laughs> that book wasn't nowhere near where, where this kind of level of book is. But um, yeah, sorry, Big Jimmy. But yeah, all good. So um, just on that, you know, you, you might feel like the work culture or the work environment you're in is all about waiting to be picked. But I really, I really love the quote, which is related here. You know. Never ask for permission, always ask for forgiveness later. So, yep. pick yourself and if you ruffle a few feathers, fuck it, you've picked yep. yourself, that's good and if you know they don't like it, just ask for forgiveness later. Exactly. I like it a lot, man. Seth said there's, a, there's no free lunch. Initiative is completely scarce. As I'm sure you've sort of worked out by now, if you look around the, the office, there's very few people that are taking this initiative. Almost everybody is following the status quo, doing what they're told and not trying to do something brand new. So because it's so scarce, of course, that means it's valuable. Mm. And one thing we never really think about is the opportunity cost of not taking initiative. He says, when the cost of poking the box is less than the cost of doing nothing, then you should poke. Mm. And I think it's a bit of a rhetorical question, man, because doing nothing has a huge cost compared (laughs) to taking initiative and doing some cool shit. So, And that's something we never really take into account. And, you know, just off topic, I think uh, realizing that your time is limited and time is scarce, really, that's the first time you start thinking about the cost of doing nothing because you realize that your precious time is being wasted and you're better off probably doing something better with your time and, you know, initiative is the key to do cool shit. I like that, mate. You've got to weigh up the cost of doing nothing. Yes, I like that a lot. That's sick, man. Another one I really liked uh, is don't tell Woody. So... Woody is uh, or was Seth's dog. And so when they first got Woody, there was a little collar uh, that Woody wore and there was like an invisible fence. So around the yard where Seth didn't have a fence, so they put this invisible fence where when the collar got too close to the fence, it like let off a little buzz. And then if the dog went even further, like trying to get out of the yard, it would buzz harder and harder until obviously you don't want to, uh, you don't want to get buzzed, this electric shock from this collar. So... After a while, so the dog would obviously, the first time he tried to get out, got a big buzz. The second time, a smaller buzz. And then the dog realized that if I get too close to this fence, I'm going to get a shock. And that's when the dog thought, okay, I'm going to stay inside the, the boundaries here. And so Seth said the funny thing happened was one day the, the fence broke, but the dog still stayed inside mm. the boundaries. So even though the boundaries no longer existed, this fence had been, this medic, the, this literal fence had been actually made ineffective, the dog still stayed inside the boundaries. And this is some work done by Martin Seligman, I think, and it's this idea of learned helplessness. Your mate. My mate. I saw him live and he was a big disappointment, but he's a nice guy, I'm sure. But yeah, it's it's similar to, say, fleas in a jar, and this is a very similar analogy where you put the lid on where the fleas are inside a jar. At the start, the fleas will keep trying to jump out of the lid, but they hit, keep hitting the roof and then falling back. But after time, they learn not to actually try and jump out the jar. After time, you take the lid off 
and you know their freedom's just on top of their head, but they've just learned not mm. to jump, so they just chill out at the bottom of the jar. Mm. And I think it's similar to do with initiative. So the reason we don't take initiative is because sometimes as we grow up, you know, in school we put our hand up and we say something dumb and we get shut down or something. Yeah. And then we get learnt, all right, better to be quiet and yeah. sit down and shut the hell up. <laughs> yeah, so learn helplessness is, you know, a bad thing. Jump out of that jar and you know j- go past the boundaries or where the the buzzer is on your neck or whatever exactly get past this learned helplessness and that's the thing is that we probably used to have these boundaries where you know two three generations ago when everyone was working in a factory there were very clear boundaries but today with the the internet and the connection economy the boundaries that we think are there they've actually been gone for a long time but we've still got this learned helplessness that there is a boundary we can't get out of that but that's very wrong we can escape that boundary Seth says, starting implies, and in brackets, demands finishing. So, to merely start without finishing is just boasting or stalling or wasting time. So, at some point, your work has to intersect with the market. At some point, you need some feedback as to whether or not you worked. Otherwise, it was merely a hobby. And this is something really difficult, right? Like, at the start, when you're initiating things, you know, you might think just, oh, just getting it out, pushing it out, pushing it out is mm. hard enough, but you need to really take the care to actually deliver it to the market properly. Exactly, man. The, the whole uh, book is all about starting, but he also says that, you know, finishing is also a very important part of starting as well and that you can't just keep starting and keeping it to yourself because then he says it's just a hobby or it's just boasting or it's just stalling or it's just this fear is stopping you from actually trying to put it out into the world, which is a, the next step and also an equally hard step. Mm. He says, the person who fails the most usually wins. So, it's not the person with the biggest failure who just really cooks something up. But because if you fail once, it's not really a big fail. Uh, You're a failure because you're busted. You also don't fail the most if you never fail because that means you're either playing it too safe, you got really lucky or you've never really shipped anything. That's it, man. So, it's like that idea of minimum bets. If you go all in on the first bet and fail, that's game over. You can't fail again because you're, you're all out there. It's also if you never fail, it means you've never tried something that was risky enough. So the person who fails the most usually wins because they've tried the most things, they've given themselves enough room to fail a couple of times and they learn every, from every single failure. They just start again and try something else. And that's definitely the biggest portion. So there's a winning little aspect of every failure and that comes from learning from every failure. So if you don't learn, then you know failure, what's the point of that? Mm. You just get slogged and don't learn anything from it. So that's game over. You make sure you learn from something and then you can end up the winner. Mate, so the next section I really liked, which he recently covered in uh, his new podcast called Akimbo, juggling is about throwing, not catching. So Seth says that when we want to learn to juggle, the most important thing is the throwing, not the catching, which is almost the exact opposite of what most people do. Most people throw, throw the ball up in the air and do everything they can to catch it. They'll you know run out of their way and try and catch it. But as soon as you do that, the whole flow is out. So Seth says that because catching is so innate, you know, if we see something out of the corner of our eye, we'll catch it. He says the most important thing is to focus on the throwing rather than the catching. If you can consistently throw it in the right spot, then keep throwing. If you do a bad throw, don't worry about catching it. Let it drop, pick it up again and try again. So you want to be focusing on the throwing and then the catching takes care of itself. And the catching is a lot like the results. So don't think about where you're catching. It's actually just throwing it up. Yes. And then you become better and better at throwing. So he says the learning to juggle is throwing one ball at a time and just focusing on the throw only and you pretty much leave the hand on the other side in the same spot. And then over time, you get become an extremely good thrower and then all of a sudden you do it with two 
you drop the first six, and then all of a sudden you got two going on. And then same when it comes to three, you introduce the third, you throw one, two, three, drop, 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 one, two, three, drop, 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 one, two. And then eventually after you've become a master of throwing, all of a sudden you got three going around and you're juggling. Not because yes. you learned how to catch, it's because you learned how to throw. Yes. And then the ball landed in the hand. Mate, it's a sick uh, analogy, isn't it? And that, as really you say, good. the catching is the result, but the throwing is that initiative, that trying something different, that starting something new. And Seth says that paradoxically, you'd think that juggling is making sure that you catch it, but it's really all about throwing and throwing it accurately and keep throwing and keep throwing and keep throwing. So if you throw poorly, let it drop and try again. So it's like that start something. If it doesn't work, try again. And eventually, once you get better at throwing, the catching takes care of itself. He talks about the fear of wrong and he says it's not surprising that we hesitate because we are scared of being wrong. So starting maximizes the chances of ending up wrong. So because you're throwing something, you have more chance of dropping just because you threw it <laughs> yeah. when you jump. <laughs> yeah. So here's the nightmare. So the boss finds someone who did something wrong and hassles, disciplines, and humiliates and fires them. And if you're never wrong, that's never going to happen. So if you never throw a ball in the air, you're never going to catch something or you're never going to drop something either. Yes. So you're never going to get in trouble from the boss. So the other scenario is the boss finds someone who didn't start, who never starts, who always studies or criticizes or plays devil's advocate, then hassles, disciplines, and humiliates and fires them. But, you know, that never happens. <laughs> so what Seth is really saying is, you know, we should probably be looking at the person who's not throwing something in the air and probably kick them out of the organization and put them on the street. Yeah, exactly. He's saying that it's, it's easy to find the person who tried something different, but it didn't quite work out. It's easy to get rid of them because you can say, you, you fucked up, mate. But it's a lot harder, but a lot more important to look for the people who are actually doing nothing. They're not trying anything. They're just the, essentially they're the guys on the sidelines. They're the critics. So you need to stop you know, looking at the guy in the arena who didn't quite work out and look for the people on the sidelines and say, come on, mate, get off your ass, get in the bloody arena. Yeah. He says, you know, if you've got a boss like this, which, you know, many of us do, the boss who, if you're an initiator and he kind of just like um, destroys the people who are just trying to do some do some stuff. And Seth had this when he had a career at Yahoo. Mm. Um, you know, he pretty much tried to start things there and he got in trouble, but he ended up being the vice president after a while. And yeah, so what happened was Seth made this... Seth made his company and he sold his company to Yahoo for 30 mil. And as part of that, Seth was their vice president of direct marketing. And so Seth went to his boss and said, hey, I've got this cool idea. We should try this. And his boss said, no, nah, mate, you're, that's not your job. <laughs> you shouldn't be trying new things. Just do what we tell you. And so Seth's obviously this guy who built this massive company, sold it to Yahoo all off, the, off his own back and off his own efforts and off his own initiative. But then when he gets in, this boss and this boss says, nah, cool your jets, mate. Just take your, take your seat and do what we tell you. So when you go to a boss like this, there's a few things you can do. You can ignore the book and he says for now in brackets, kind of implying that it's not a good idea in the long run. Yeah. And number two is you start looking for a new gig as soon as possible. But there's a third option, ignore your boss and start keep starting things. And he says it always works out in yeah. the end. That's it. So you can either look at if the, the boss is someone who's such a, a rock at the bottom of this flowing river, Look for a new boss that's more of a, a log boss that's going to go yeah, with you the want flow. The logs. And then the other option, of course, is to just keep doing things anyway, which is important because in the end, it's going to work out. Mm. It's um, going to be tough at first, but in the end, it's going to work out. So we need to do starting as a way of life, right, as we come toward the end. So innovation is mysterious. Inspiration is largely unpredictable. But once the habit is ingrained in you and you become the starter, the center of the circle, you'll find more and more things to notice, to instigate and to initiate. Yeah. 
you got to keep looking out for that. And as we said, it's a way of life. Once you start starting, you're going to keep starting and keep finding more things to start. So, you know, there's a lot of things out there that isn't safe when you become an initiator yourself, right? So, selling is not safe. You might get rejected. Speaking up is not safe. People might get offended. Innovation is not safe because you're going to fail perhaps badly. Yeah. He says that also though, things that we might think are safe. He says golf, that's not safe. You know, people get hit in the head and die all the time. And, you know, sitting in the corner isn't safe either because, you know, in 30 years, you're going to be stuck in that same corner, which is not safe at all. Yeah. He says, now we've got all these, you know, all these honesties out of the way. Like, what are you going to do about it now with all this in mind? Are you going to crouch in the corner at work like a little rock and work as hard as you can just to fit in like everyone else? As you said, man, that's not safe. No, that's not safe at all. Being an initiator and starting shit and flowing with the river and the tides, that's the way you got to do stuff in, in, in these days. Yeah, so Seth's saying, look, if it's not safe to initiate, but it's also not safe to sit in the corner and you know try and fit in, if neither of them are safe, then you may as well do something that matters. Be the one who initiates and you can't lose. So get out there and start some shit. Man, I like this, the closing remarks, the quote at the end. There are two mistakes you can make along the road. One is not going all the way and one is not starting by Siddhartha Gautama. Do you know who that is? Big Buddha. The big buds. That's it. Start, initiate, do something different. Yep. So you said you can't lose, go. Go.